next generation sequencing has completely revolutionized the field of ancient DNA. And to be completely honest, there's been done tweaks on the extractions. There's been done all kinds of things in terms of improving output, but nothing of what has been done is comparable with what next generation sequencing have done to the field in terms of impacting it. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello, and a very special welcome to episode 39 of the Genomics Podcast. I think you'll agree that we humans are a really curious species. We're always trying to learn more about ourselves and about the world around us. In fact, at least 10 million people have had their own DNA analyzed by a direct-to-consumer genetics company. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's something that anyone should or should not do, but I am suggesting that it helps to illustrate that all of us, scientists and non-scientists alike, are interested in fundamental human questions. Questions like, who am I, where do I come from, and how did I get here? Understanding our ancient past is typically informed by archaeology, and that's the study of materials and artifacts from past human life and activities. Recently, scientists have begun employing next-generation sequencing, or NGS, to study ancient DNA that they collect from ancient human remains. This has really added a lot of color to our understanding of our own human history, and in some cases, it's even challenged some long-standing principles in archaeology. So in this episode of the Genomics Podcast, we'll discuss ancient DNA, human biology, and human history with Dr. Eske Villerslev. Eske is professor at the University of Cambridge, and he's also professor and director for the Center of Excellence in Geogenetics at the University of Copenhagen. He's a world-renowned expert in the field of ancient DNA and environmental DNA. And he joined me to talk about the impact that genomics has had on archaeology and on the study of ancient DNA. Today we're talking about genomics of ancient DNA and sequencing of ancient DNA. And before we get into that topic, I'd like to start with defining some terms really quickly. So we've, we've done a few shows on metagenomics DNA, metagenomics being the DNA that you collect from environmental sample. But uh, your work involves ancient DNA, and the work here involves environmental DNA. So could you briefly define those terms for our listeners, and particularly for environmental DNA, how is that, as a concept, how does that differ from metagenomic DNA? Well, what we're doing is we're focusing on two areas. One is ancient human genomics, where we basically reconstruct the genome based from ancient human remains, typical teeth or petrous bone, which is a part of the bone in, associated with the skull and the inaya. And then we're doing environmental DNA. And uh, in terms of environmental DNA, there's really two ways one can approach it. Uh, one is from what is known as meta-barcoding. It's just a fancy name for using universal primers binding to kind of very uh, conservative sites where the DNA in between is very variable 
across different species, right? So, so it'd be complementary to 16S for medicine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you do bacteria from sediments or environmental samples, many people have used 16S, right? right? Whatever you're doing in terms of your identification, when you're doing uh, environmental DNA, you have to be able to do the identification based on very short fragments. And this is kind of different, uh, you can say, from going into a, a modern soil and doing 16S, right? right? There you can go for much longer fragments. The barcodes is different across different types of taxa. So you have, for example, a few barcodes for, for higher plants. You have different ones for mammals and so forth. But in this environmental DNA approach, what we're doing is we're basically retrieving DNA information about what we typically call higher organisms. It mm -hmm. means it's higher plants, it's plants, and it's also mammals and birds, right? So it's... Uh, in metagenomics, we're talking about microbial species. Very mainly. often. Right. The other approach is very similar to, you can say, classical metagenomics. There you're simply just shotgun sequencing everything that is in there. So you're getting everything from the microbial content to, you know, the DNA of the higher organisms. This is something that was only done very recently on ancient samples, mm -hmm. uh, where the DNA is very fragmented. The sensitivity in terms of getting different organisms in the community, in my view, is way better than, you can say, the metabarcoding approach. Really? Yeah. I mean, so you are getting many more species. The first time we ever did it, and anybody did it on ancient samples, it was on uh, late core samples trying to reconstruct, you can say, the biological succession. I mean, how has the biological community changed in the so-called interior ice-free corridor in America, North America? And this is this corridor that was created between two massive ice sheets that were kind of lying across most of North America around 20,000 years. But around 13,000, you know, they're melting back enough that there's been created this interior ice-free corridor, which is basically 1,500 kilometers long. And this corridor has played a very important role for every kind of understanding of migrations and distributions of both humans and animals in America. So in typical school book examples or textbooks, you see, you know, an arrow going through the interior ice-free corridor from Alaska, you know, down to uh, Montana. That was and a, this is where humans came from. That was in our from. textbooks. I can, exactly, uh, I can right. confirm that. Was this a biological viable community for humans, or for that matter, animals, to be in? I mean, 1,500 kilometers is a long walk, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so um, we went and took these lake core samples. I mean, so we basically drilled through the ice. It was in the wintertime through the water column and into the sediments themselves. And these sediments in these some of these lakes are going back all the way to the beginning, you can say, of the interior ice-free corridor. So I thought, you know, we would almost get nothing, that it was really a long shot, and we got just incredible data. You start by having microbial communities, but it's actually first after around 600 years that we see any evidence of higher organisms, such as plants and animals. And then you start by looking, you basically see a step environment with, uh, you know, forbs and grasses. And at the same time, we see woolly mammoth, bison. And then after a few thousand years, you get open populous forest, which is called like kind of parkland. And at the same time, we see the animal life changing into elk 
And, you know, after a few more thousand years, you get boreal forest, as we know the region today. And then the animal life changes into moose. And we see when do fish appear, when do eagles appear, right, in this system. So it's a very detailed reconstruction you're getting from the DNA. We're still doing some meter barcoding, but we are really moved more and more into just shotgun sequencing. And also when sequencing prices are dropping, yeah, right? Sure. Of course, and I, I, mean, I think we see this too in the metagenomics yeah. field. People are moving to shotguns exactly. just to, to increase resolution of what they can, exactly. what they can detect in samples. Exactly. The ancient DNA, as you described, is in a pretty degraded state yeah, compared yeah. to a modern DNA sample. Mm-hmm. Can you just describe what those changes to DNA look like in an mm-hmm. ancient sample? And mm-hmm. how do you separate the sequence of ancient DNA in your mm-hmm. sample from modern mm-hmm. DNA that mm-hmm. could contaminate the sample? What is typical of ancient DNA is, one, that it's extremely fragmented, and two, that it has various types of miscoding lesions. The main type of miscoding lesions is a result of deamination of cytosine. Okay. which basically result in it looking like a uracil. And therefore, you know, during the whole amplification process, you're basically getting these CT changes, right? You are faced with two problems. I mean, one is the very short fragment length, and this influence, you know, I mean, most extraction kits, for example, are basically trying to get rid of the short <laughs> fragments and keeping the long fragments, right? And what we are interested in is getting rid of the long fragments because that's contamination and keeping the short fragments. Right. And and the, the other issue is, of course, this deamination, these miscoding lesions. I mean, in the old days when I started, the biggest problem in ancient DNA research was contamination. I can imagine. I mean, it was just, I mean, and there was these early results of people claiming, you know, DNA results from million-year-old dinosaur bones and amber and some insects and stuff like that that later turned out, you know, to be due to contamination, right? So so actually, I mean, the field went through like a major depression (laughs) and and no one believed, uh, you know, in the results and particularly for human stuff because obviously human contamination is everywhere because everything is produced by humans, right? right? And how can you distinguish, you know, if you take a Viking bone sample and you say, well, what is the difference between an a-, a Viking and a present-day Dane, for example, right? I would say next-generation sequencing has completely revolutionized the field of ancient DNA. To be completely honest, I mean, there's been done tweaks on the extractions. There's been done all kinds of things, I mean, in terms of improving output right. and so forth, but nothing of what has been done is comparable with what next-generation sequencing have done to the field in terms of impacting it. So that was the innovation that really brought the field forward to where it is? No question about it. In the old days, when you did a PCR, I mean, you had to have primer binding sites, obviously, right? Typical 20, 30 base pairs on each side. And then you had something in between. This is what you needed to analyze. And if that went too short, there was nothing Mm-hmm. to analyze, right? Yeah. So that meant that the shortest fragment length you could kind of go for was something like 90 base pairs. It meant that, you know, a lot of samples came out as contamination because obviously we know today that, uh, you know, the arid's length in many of these samples were way shorter than that. Next generation sequencing, obviously, where you are ligating the primer binding sites, the fragments you can suddenly go and look for is 
at least down to 30 base pairs, wow. right? Because you can map, I think it's something like, is it 60% of the human genome uniquely based on just 30 base pair fragments? I, it's in I that range. That it's That's in that range yeah. at least, right? When you suddenly could move into the range of 30 base pairs instead, the amount of endogenous DNA just exploded in these yeah. samples. A lot of the samples, first of all, that didn't work, where we said there was no DNA left. I mean, suddenly those Turns worked. Turns out they so worked, lots right? of DNA. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of samples where you were struggling with contamination, you basically almost didn't see much contamination anymore because the thing with contamination is an endogenous ancient DNA is a numbers game, right? It's how much you have relatively of one relative to the other, sure. right? So if you suddenly increases the number of endogenous DNA many, many fold, that also means that relatively the amount of contamination just goes down, right, in yeah. what you see from your sequencing. So when we, for example, did the first ancient human genome, this is from an ancient tuft of hair that was 4,000 years old from Greenland. When we did a traditional PCR, we got no result. We got negative result. There was wow. nothing. And when we did uh, next generation sequencing, you know, we could do the whole genome, right? And we the did whole to an, genome. Did, we so did you the went from genome, nothing to a whole, to a genome. whole genome. Wow. And the average size of the fragments in there was 55 base pairs, right? So wow. we, that's why we didn't see anything with the traditional PCR. Additional to that, we can see that it's actually now very clear whether you have an ancient sequence or a modern sequence because. The damage patterns, that's the other thing. With next-generation sequencing, you're keeping the damage profile at the termini of the sequence. When you did regular PCR, you know, using primer binding sites, right? Yeah. You are modifying the termini, yeah. you know, and it's very clear that the termini of the sequence is where you have elevated levels of deamination damage. I see. So, therefore, when you look at CT changes and GA changes... What you expect to see from an ancient sequence is elevated levels around the termini, while on a modern DNA sequence, you're not seeing that, right? right? Actually, just by looking at it, you can see the contamination. You are actually doing whole genome yeah, sequencing yeah. of these ancient mm -hmm. DNAs, which mm -hmm. was not possible mm -hmm. before, and that's opening up a whole new world of biology for I you. I mean, completely. I mean, it has revolutionized the way we look at human evolution and human history. I mean, of course, genomics have revolutionized many fields, but I mean, it's a complete revolution because in many ways, but I mean, if you just look at something very obvious, before when you looked at human history and you looked at cultural objects, right? Yeah. You found something from the Romans in Denmark, for example, or in Northern Europe somewhere. You have to ask yourself, how did it get there? What does this mean? Well, it could mean one of two things, right? It could mean that people had traded these objects all the way from Rome up to Northern Europe, right. which was very often the interpretation. But the alternative explanation for this, and also a possibility, is that there was actually a movement of humans, you know, from Italy or Rome somewhere, going into Northern Europe. And there was no way to distinguish between those two scenarios. And wow. this, is the yeah, this is a very, you can say, widespread phenomena, right? You see something, or you can take from the America, you can, for example, take one theory that has been out there, the so-called solution theory of early peopling of the Americas, where people came and said, well, we find tools, stone tools, in Europe 
that are very similar to stone tools, the so-called Clovey stone tools in America, which are some of the very early kind of cultures in America. So you see this similarity in tools, right? And that result in people claiming, well, the first humans getting into the Americas were actually Europeans. Just because of the artifacts. Because of the artifacts. Because you are saying, well, artifacts is a proxy for humans. I mean, for human movements, right? Right. So you can say that's the opposite of saying there's a trading of objects. The other thing is, of course, another possibility with stone artifacts is, well, could it be convergent evolution, right? Sure. Could it be there's actually a limited number of how you can break a stone <laughs> and get something useful out of it, right? right? And there must be, you know, parallel developments. There was really no way to distinguish between the two until DNA. And when we then sequenced the first ancient human genome from America, which was a Clovis, it's actually the only Clovis skeleton found. And, well, we could see, well, it's genetically speaking, it's 100% Native American, right? There's nothing more no European. No European DNA. No, there. no, exactly. There's no more European than those in the present-day full-blood Native American. So, I mean, this was one of the ways where you could kind of go and say, is these interpretations right or wrong? And there was no way before, right? Wow. So you could basically test this hypothesis exactly. and prove, prove what the case was. Exactly, wow. exactly. And in that sense, it has really revolutionized. And I would say when I went to school, I mean, the general notion I was told, for example, is that you are descending directly from the Stone Age man in Denmark, right? <laughs> I mean, and it's, it was a cultural change, but it was the same people, right? I mean, it's the same people staying the same place, and then they underwent cultural development. And this was really the general notion. It wasn't everybody who said, but most people in archaeology had that view. That was the general concept. And it's not that long ago. It's like less than 10 years ago, right? This was the general concept. Today, we know it's completely wrong. I mean, that the vast majority of what we see as cultural changes happening across the world is something associated with the movements of people and the meeting of different people. So the movement of these ancient populations was much more common than archaeologists appreciate. I mean... So we've we always been, been traveling. We have been sense. traveling always. As far back as we can see, we have been traveling. We have meet different populations. We have mixed with them. We have split out again, met some other ones, mixed with them, might be meeting the ones we mixed with many, many <laughs> thousand years ago. We're meeting again. And this is also the reason why I think one of the legacies that ancient DNA will leave behind and that you will see in school books over the next few years is that the whole racial concept is basically not supported scientifically. And I think this is one of the legacies that I'm very proud of because so far, I mean, when we talk about why we shouldn't talk about races and all that, it has always been a question of kind of from a humanity perspective, right? I mean, we should treat each other well and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't kind of should uh, respect, each, respect other. each other and so forth. And that's all good, right? But it hasn't removed racism. Right? Oh, right. I mean, this is just that's, how this fact, is the yeah. fact, right? That's fact. Whether we yeah. think it's the right way and there's good arguments and so forth. forth. Now we have a scientific argument. I mean, we can basically scientifically show 
Well, it doesn't make sense because we have moved around, we have met each other, we are mixed with each other, and you know, it just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. Everybody has somehow mixed with each other. And therefore, I think, from my perspective, I think it's a very important legacy of the ancient DNA work and, you know, reconstructing human history. The questions that you're talking about, these are fundamental human questions, whether you're a scientist or a non-scientist. Exactly. I mean, in, the, in my part of the world, maybe here too, we have these direct-to-consumer companies, and there are millions of people sending their biological samples for DNA analysis, yeah. basically to find out, you know, where am I from, yeah. who am I related to, how mm. did I get here? Yeah. So I, I think everyone is absolutely fundamentally interested in this question. I think it's a central question of what, what makes us human. Exactly. No, it, it, it is, right? It's knowing our own history and where we are coming from. In the time that we have left, mm. I was wondering if I could just ask you a couple questions, because mm. I'm really interested in coming back to the ancient DNA sure. and the nature of the, the changes that this DNA undergoes when it's exposed to the yeah. environment. Mm -hmm. So epigenetic changes, are epigenetic markers like methylation, acetylation, are those markers preserved in ancient DNA? Can one actually look at that? Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. We did the first paper on this, and uh, this was actually on the same sample where we did the first ancient human genome, and this sample from Greenland. It turns out that if you have a good coverage, you need a good coverage. I mean, at least uh, 10x average coverage. But then you can use... But in a modern sample, we would call that low coverage, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. But in ancient <laughs> DNA, you know, the thing is, this is something we should actually mention, uh, you know, that it, when you take an ancient sample, the vast majority of the DNA you're getting out of the sample is non-human. It's actually microbial. So you need a lot of sequencing so depth even to get to Exactly. Coverage. So you have to bully your way through, basically, a lot of microbial data. First, when we started doing this, and this, of course, is expensive, it's time-consuming. And first, when we did this, we thought it was really annoying. It was a waste of time and money. And, you know, we just put away all that waste product. Then we found out, it turned out, that yes, some of this microbial DNA is environmental and might not be so interesting for what you're doing. But a fraction of it is actually bacteria and viruses, it's pathogens, it's humans' pathogens. So it's carrying the signatures of what humans, these humans were carrying of diseases at the time of death. And we are getting DNA from a lot of diseases. And it's not only super important in order to reconstruct the evolution of those diseases. I mean, it's completely transforming the way we look at pathogen evolution. I mean, we just had a paper out last year on hepatitis B, for example. I mean, there was people out there claiming or believing that hepatitis B hadn't been present in Europe for more than about five, 600 years. We found it back 5,000 years ago, right? The same with plague epidemics. We saw plague epidemic 3,000 years before any, you know, written records. But not only from an evolutionary point of view. I mean, what these pathogens are providing is a catalog over the different mutations, the different variants that have existed in the past and that will return at some point. This means you can actually go and say, well, do our current vaccines covering all these variants? If they are not, we can, which we're already doing, you know, you can revive them. You can actually revive a Bronx Age virus. Really? And yeah, yeah. And put it into a mouse and see what is the effect. And if the current vaccines are not covering it, and, you know, you find out, well, this is actually really nasty stuff. 
well, you better get started, right? So you get the opportunity to take out the fire even before it was starting, right? So here by shotgun sequencing, we're getting the full genome, we're getting the pathogens, we're getting all this in an unbiased way. But to get back to your question about epigenetics, basically why you can reconstruct parts of the epigenome is because, you know, the way the DNA are damaged is reflecting whether, for example, a cytosine was methylated or not. So it's the damage patterns tell you how the methylation pattern is. And wow. also the coverage, the pattern of coverage, is telling you where was the genome wrapped around nucleosomes. So, I mean, nucleosomes are to some extent protecting the DNA from, that damage. from, from the damage. So it means you're simply getting higher coverage in those areas where you have it wrapped around the nucleosome. Wow. So you can use this information to reconstruct the epigenome. It's something that is just really started being used in a larger scale. But think about it. I mean, simple questions, for example, like how long time can you inherit an epigenome? Yeah, right? that's a great question. I mean, yeah. Which is something that is still debated. Yeah. I mean, you can address that. You can address, you can go and say, what did it mean, for example, when you see an elevated disease load in certain populations? And some of these populations, like Native Americans, Aborigine Australians, and other indigenous groups, could this be related to the starvation and stress that happened, you know, during the reservation area, for example, a boarding school period and so forth? Was this due to epigenetic changes, right? Yeah. That was then inherited and people actually maybe even facing the consequences of what their ancestors were going yeah. through. All these questions. And I mean, even something as basic as you can't look at RNA because obviously that doesn't last. No. But through this technique, you can actually get an idea of what genes, what gene families might have been expressed in exactly. these ancient populations. Exactly. Uh, it's just, it's just exactly. amazing. Exactly. So to sum up, I mean, this whole genome sequencing approach, this shotgun approach gives you not only the genome, you get epigenetic markers mm. genome-wide. Mm. You have some idea of gene expression. You can even recover microbes that are associated with us. Basically, it sounds to me like you can get almost as much information from an ancient yeah. DNA sample as you as can a from a modern, modern DNA exactly. sample. We are, I would say we are really close to be at that stage. And if you look at, okay, what is the different factors we know are influencing the human phenotype? Well, we know it's ancestry, right? We know it's epigenome. We know it's environment where we can reconstruct the environment from environmental DNA, right? Yeah. And then it's the microbiome. And even the microbiome, the large parts of the oral microbiome. I was going to ask you about you the can microbiome. Get, yeah, you <laughs> can actually get that from the plaque, from what we call the calculus on the teeth. So you can also get parts of that. So wow. we are very close of getting, you can say, the same type of data that you, we normally use, you know, in modern genomics to kind of reconstruct the things that are impacting the phenotype. But what you have here, and which is unique compared to the modern setting, is you have time. So by doing the ancient stuff, you can actually go through time. And that means you can also look and say, well, when did selection happen? For example, what genes, what variants are impacted by selection? Recently, in modern people, we're, mm. we're moving to these massive population-based sequencing yeah. efforts, right? Mm. A 100,000 genome project mm. in the UK. 
I mean, I don't know how many ancient samples there are in the world, but do you imagine something similar happening happening definitely, with ancient DNA? Definitely. I mean, of course you can say you have the limitation of ancient human remains. However, I would say over the past around 5,000 years of human history, I mean, there's generally, for many areas of the world, there's a lot of skeleton material. Really? A lot. Tens of thousands wow. and hundreds, I would say even probably hundreds of thousands in many cases of skeletons. It's when you go beyond that, then it starts in many places becoming more rare. But there's still, of course, human remains around. So it means I'm confident that what you will see over the next five years' time is you're getting these kind of really large-scale ancient human DNA projects where we talk at least many thousands of wow. genomes, so right? Comparative genomics yeah. genome-wide on ancient, exactly. ancient samples. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah. And of course, it's a matter of time when the sequencing cost goes down enough. I mean, we will see, you know, panels of probably 10,000 <laughs> or even more tens of thousands yeah. uh, of ancient human genomes. That's amazing. Mm. Eska, the work that you're doing really, I'm amazed by it, and it, it really goes to the heart of these, like we said, these fundamental human questions mm. of who we are, where we come from, how we got there. You know, thanks so much for spending some time and talking with me and our listeners about this topic. It's fascinating. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. So scientists can now study the genomics of DNA from ancient human remains and from a variety of environmental samples. It turns out that short-read NGS technology is perfectly suited for sequencing ancient DNA. This ability to apply high-throughput sequencing to ancient DNA is transforming the field of archaeology, and it's revolutionizing our understanding of human history and human migration. Hey, if you like today's show, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our show from Siri, Alexa, or your Google Assistant. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Randy Shrigardis, Student Programs Manager at the Van Andel Education Institute. We'll be discussing science education models and curricula for training the next generation of scientists right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Mm-hmm.